Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And we're getting close, John. We're inching ever closer to that day when I'll be rooting for the Parks Casino Phillies and you'll be rooting for the DraftKings Sportsbook Mets. Uh, On Monday, it was officially announced that the Superdome in New Orleans, home of the Saints, is now the Caesars Superdome. Uh, for the anti-gambling crowd, the apocalypse has arrived. Uh, but I don't mind. Uh, it's, it's certainly no worse in terms of the sound of it or the principle of the matter than the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. What do you say, John? Are, are you prepared for your semi-beloved Washington football team to become the Washington FanDuel single-game parlays? Well, you know, Eric, first, I, uh, I'm speaking of uh, silly naming rights. Um, I'd be remiss if I did not express my condolences to you that renaming of each of the Garden State Parkway rest stops this week. I don't know if you saw this one, but I didn't. It's not, it does not include the name of the beloved Bruce Springsteen, who no. turned down the, uh, is it an honor? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, now, Frank Sinatra, James Gandolfini, Larry Doby, Whitney Houston, they're no longer with us and got chosen. And uh, with Frank getting the one near Atlantic City, which kind of feels right to me, um, mm-hmm. Gandolfini got the northernmost one. And, Bergen County, which is where he lived, and not the one in Essex County, where his Sopranos character lived. Uh, Dobie, who was from there, got that one, so that's okay. There's also a Connie Chung, a Judy Bloom, and a Celia Cruz rest stop. But wow. uh, if you wondered who got the most Jersey Shore piss and go, I think that's what they're called, piss and goes. <laughs> uh, it's 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 Sean Bon Jovi again. Yeah, who's from a bit north of the former Cheesequake service area. But uh, there you go. Anyway, back to the Caesar Superdome. Uh, I have fond memories of first seeing it in 1984 when during a Mardi Gras parade there, I, I snagged a coveted doubloon that enabled me to one free ticket to uh, attend a New Orleans Breakers USFL game there. Uh, unfortunately, the Breakers were on the road that weekend visiting the San Antonio Gunslingers. And wow, that is a nickname from another era, isn't it? Yeah. Um, then the Breakers, who spent 1983 in Boston, decided to spend 1985 in Portland before going out of business with the rest of the league after, I don't know, some guys sued the NFL and won a battle or lost the war or something like that. Um, I still have that coin around here somewhere, along with all the other crap that I scooped up at a week's worth of parades all those years ago. Anyway, again, okay, Caesars <laughs> yeah, might be the ideal gambling-related partnership. Everyone's heard of Caesars Palace and all the sports and entertainment and hijinks that have taken place there. It's in all kinds of movies and, uh, you know, cultural history, really. Uh, and even those who don't like gambling probably don't mind this one. That's why, I think. So, and it happens that the city's downtown casino is, is a Harris, which I've been to, and that's part of the Caesars brand. So I think this one is just fine, Eric. Yeah, I think you're right that Caesars is a, a name that particularly kind of resonates in a an inoffensive kind of way. Yeah. It, it feels more mainstream than really, really gambling centric. Um, and yeah, yeah, none of these corporate stadium names really bother me anymore. Uh, several years ago, what is now the Wells Fargo Center in Philly was the first union center and locals lovingly dubbed it the FU Center. And once you've <laughs> attended games at the FU Center, I think Caesar Superdome is really no big deal. Um, but as long as we're talking about names, can I get your 15 second or so take on the Cleveland Guardians? Are you uh, pro anti? How do you feel about that one? 
my main issue is that I've been to Cleveland dozens of times and I spent a lot of time with the locals. I love the city, love the people and no one ever mentioned guardians. Okay. I mean, (laughs) they didn't even get like in the 1990s, you'd get like the continental airlines, you know, travel magazine, the puff piece on each city that they flew to a lot. And, you know, this isn't exactly the Alamo in San Antonio or, you know, Pike place market in Seattle. I, even locals there, some of them have never heard of it. So that's the only problem I have. If the Cleveland people actually like the Guardians nickname, it's fine with me. I don't think they really care either way. And everybody's tired of the whole Indians controversy, no matter what anyone feels about it. So, you know, it's OK, I guess. But uh, it's, it seems a little corporate marketing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Well, uh, speaking as the brother of the editor of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, my That's opinion right. on this is, of course, <laughs> highly important. Uh, but I'm, I'm still kind of making up my mind. Uh, I, I don't really feel strongly one way or the other. I think uh, I'll, I'll get back to you if I uh, if I ha- end up developing a, a strong take on Cleveland Guardians. But for now, eh, shoulder shrug, I think, is the uh, is the most common response. Yeah, there's supposed to be statues along some broken down bridge in town that, again, nobody ever mentions. I mean, you can't get in a cab or nowadays an Uber in Indianapolis without the driver telling you you have to go to St. Elmo's Steakhouse. It's like, you know what it is? It's it's a steakhouse. They only have one that's like major league. You know, New York has 100 of them. Philly has probably 60 of them. And so, I mean, they could rename them in Indianapolis, any team to do that. But nobody in Cleveland talks about the Guardians. That's much my only issue. Yeah, well, uh, it's funny that you uh, casually dropped in the term major league while we're talking about uh, the Cleveland baseball yeah. team there. Uh, I, I, whether they'll uh, if, when when there is an inevitable remake of that movie, since everything gets remade, we'll see if they do it with the Cleveland Guardians. Yeah, there's been a sequel, I know, but I don't know. Right. There was a sequel not too long. Being a reboot. OK, yeah, right. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. All right. <laughs> uh, we have gotten way off track. Let's get back yeah, on sorry. track and thank everyone for joining us for episode number 153 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 152 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all other podcast apps. Please click the Caesars subscribe button. Give us a BetMGM five star rating and write a nice 888 Sport customer review. Nice. Yeah. And coming up a little later on the show, I'm going to be joined by Mike Seeley. He's our newest colleague as a writer and editor for the U.S. Bets family of sites. Uh, Mike has covered everything from horse racing to basketball during his long journalism career. And so we're going to ask him about those sports and more, including his take on how confident he is or maybe isn't in the U.S. men's basketball team winning Olympic gold. But first, it's been an eclectically busy week of the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We start this week with what would have been in years past just a straight up sports news story, but in 2021, is also a sports betting story. The reigning NFL MVP, Aaron Rodgers, has been the subject of speculation throughout the offseason as he expressed displeasure over management in Green Bay and became the subject of trade rumors, leading to some movement in Packers odds and also the odds for the Broncos, the team he was most widely rumored to be heading to. It took two particularly interesting turns this week. On Friday, Pro Football Talk reported that sources close to Rodgers said he'd be announcing his retirement, which led to many books taking Packers futures off the board. Then Monday, word came out that Rodgers was planning to play for the Packers this season after all, meaning either he'd changed his mind quickly or the Friday report was dead wrong. 
The next day, Rogers did indeed report to training camp. There are other subplots, including parallel uncertainty surrounding star receiver Devontae Adams. But the most noteworthy thing, as our friends Dan Bach and Dave Sharapan did an excellent job discussing on the Get a Grip podcast, is how the tail is wagging the dog with inaccurate media reports influencing sportsbook actions and then people reacting to betting line movement as if it means the reporting is accurate. Uh, John, did you believe for even a moment that Aaron Rodgers was actually going to retire? And how do you feel about the power that anonymously sourced reports can have on bookmakers? This is a weird one for sure. You know, uh, former Packers executive Andrew Brandt, he's a force of nature on Twitter, and he had this nailed from day one. Uh, so his followers might be sitting on some pretty sweet odds now, except he had also said uh, this year that there was no way Carson Wentz was getting traded, like no way. <laughs> so I pass on the opportunity, but a, a true sharp could have differentiated from a knowledgeable outsider to Eagles doings to a might as well still be an insider on how it plays out in Green Bay. Hmm. But uh, overall, I guess the books are just following public sentiment and yeah, like I said, it, it, it is weird. Yeah. So you may have seen my tweet about my Broncos bet, John, but I'll, I'll repeat it here in case you missed it or in case any listeners missed it. Um, very early in the offseason, uh, it was definitely sometime well before the draft when most books had the Broncos at 60 to 1 or 70 to 1 to win the Super Bowl. Uh, Fox bet, I found, had them an extra juicy 80 to 1. And there were rumors starting to swirl that they were the most likely Rodgers trade destination. So I bet $3 on them at 80 to 1. Uh, it didn't take long for those odds to drop to 40 to one, then 30 to one. It might even have gotten a little lower than that. Um, I was tempted a few times to cash out when they were offering me $8 or $9 for my $3. Ooh, but nice. I, I didn't at, because I was just like, well, I don't care about eight or nine bucks, but I yeah, still have yeah. a chance at $240 here. <laughs> um, however, as soon as the report came out that Rodgers was planning to report to Packers camp and was finalizing a deal to play one more season in Green Bay, which all sounded very believable to me, Fox Bet was still offering me $6.01, so I took it. Hey, I doubled my money. (laughs) Uh, Kind of disappointing, but, uh, you know, I'm not too concerned at the moment that the Broncos are going to win it all with Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater, and I will regret my cash out. Um, My most pathetic cash out ever was, uh, I think Jason Day was 10 shots out of the lead with one round to go, and DraftKings offered me 10 cents on my $2 bet. (laughs) And you know what? I took it. There's no coming back from 10 shots. Back, there's no chance, so I got my dime. All right, there you go. <laughs> a mere loss of a dollar ninety could have been worse, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I never for a second believed that retirement was on the table or that Rogers was going to leave football to go host Jeopardy full time, as some people were speculating. But I, I do think bookmakers are in a tough spot with this stuff because you just don't know what reports to believe. I don't have a problem with sports books temporarily taking markets down in times of extreme uncertainty. I also think they can be well served to set low limits on futures bets way in advance. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's nowhere. It's one thing to have low limits when it's about to be week one, but when we're still six months away from that or whatever, keep your limits low. That's fine. The key, I guess, is not to react to unsubstantiated news and, you know, drop the Packers win total from like 10 to seven and open yourself up to a big middle opportunity. Uh, and, and also for betters, uh, the key is not to overreact. Don't go betting everything you own on the Vikings to win the NFC North because one reporter says Aaron Rodgers is retiring. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think this is getting a little bit 
out of hand. And I think the limits uh, issue you mentioned is a key because, uh, look, there are actually a few people who know Aaron Rodgers really well. They knew exactly what he was going to do. They're not broadcasting on social media, but they know. And if there's virtually no limit, then that becomes an insider trading issue, really. And that's, uh, you know, it's not good for the stock market. It's not good for sports betting. So I I think uh, lowering the limit, I guess, for a time period for an, you know, interesting uh, and confusing uh, situation like this, uh, (laughs) that seems reasonable to me. Yeah. All right. Moving on to our second story. Uh, We haven't talked much on the podcast about sports betting in Oregon because sports betting in Oregon has to this point frankly, been lame. Uh, Online betting has been a monopoly run by the state lottery. Uh, But there was a very interesting development this week. On Monday, DraftKings daily fantasy players in Oregon were informed that as of Wednesday morning, they would no longer have access to the DFS games. And the note to customers was extremely straightforward, uh, perhaps surprisingly so. DraftKings told players, quote, As you might already be aware, DraftKings has been in discussions with the Oregon Lottery to potentially transition its scoreboard app to the DraftKings platform. During these discussions, some questions have been raised about whether paid fantasy sports contests are permissible under Oregon law. While we respectfully disagree, we value our relationship with the Oregon Lottery and share a common commitment to best serve Oregonians who are passionate about sports betting. As such, DraftKings will stop paid fantasy sports contests in Oregon at 7 a.m. PST on July 26, 2021, so that those discussions can continue, end quote. FanDuel then informed Oregonians that FanDuel DFS would remain fully available. Uh, But DraftKings, nope, they pulled the DFS games just in case while trying to take over the sports betting monopoly. It's not exactly surprising to learn one of these companies values sports betting over DFS. Are you surprised, though, John, that they leveled with their customers to this extent? And do you find it ridiculous that a state would have legal sports betting but uncertainty over the legality of DFS? Well, let's face it. I mean, DFS tried to have it both ways for a number of years. You know, whoa, whoa, we are nothing like sports betting, which, of course, was illegal outside of Nevada until 2018. Don't be fooled by the fact that gamblers, I mean, players, ante up, (laughs) I mean, pay an entry fee and risk their money on the results of sporting events. No, no, no. No, sorry, Bob. That's not like sports betting at all. Well, Oregon has only legalized sports betting, and since DFS isn't like it at all, hmm, it does make it a little confusing, <laughs> doesn't it? So my wild guess here is that DraftKings gets the sports betting monopoly, and as you know, they believe that is more it is more lucrative than DFS itself, and I agree. If you like DFS, you know, single-game parlays and over-under on your favorite player yardage totals is probably similar enough for loyal DK players to not say, well, now I've got to go over to FanDuel because uh, it's not the exact same thing anymore. I mean, you, you have preferred players, and and you have high expectations for them and you're rooting for them and you could risk money on them. And I don't think too many DFS players are going to say, yeah, but I don't know sports betting. That's not really for me. I'm, I'm a DFS guy. I mean, it's, it's money risking and they're going to be willing to do that. So I think uh, DraftKings is making a smart player overall. Yeah, I certainly agree on that latter point. Uh, I do think there are some people who really love DFS who aren't aren't haven't found themselves getting into sports betting. It's yeah. somewhat of a different, you know, from a strategic point of view. And so, as I would just imagine that FanDuel is going to see a slight uptick in their in their players in Oregon as some people defect from DraftKings. But yeah, uh, certainly. DFS is of secondary concern to these companies these days. Sports betting is where the money is at. So DraftKings making this decision makes total sense. I I looked up the numbers in my home state of Pennsylvania for June just to see a point of comparison. 
FanDuel online sports betting revenue for June, $16.4 million. DraftKings online sports betting revenue, $5.7 million. FanDuel DFS revenue, 885000 DraftKings DFS revenue, 994000 So it, it's just not even close in states that offer both, that sports betting is where the money's at. Uh, so naturally, DraftKings is willing to piss a few customers off and lose out on a few hundred thousand dollars a month in Oregon DFS revenue in order to pick up a few million a month with an online sports betting monopoly. And I would also guess that this dropping of DFS will be temporary and they'll eventually get some sort of assurance that it's fine and they're just playing it extra safe for now. Uh, But if there's one group of people I do have some sympathy for here, it's the DraftKings customers who were accruing rewards points and uh, and suddenly get cut off as they were making progress towards some sort of bonuses. Uh, I would hope that the company will make it right with with those customers and, and top off their bonuses if they don't have access to continue playing DFS on DraftKings. Uh, although, you know, when the history of this is written, and no, it's not going to be by me. There's about 10 books that people want me to write. I don't have time for this one either. But, <laughs> you know, the genius of... Delhi Fantasy Sports was to uh, get sports fans who like to risk money to sign up by the millions to a couple of major sites. And then you have this pre-existing database that when some luck involved here, but when uh, sports betting got legalized, thanks to those of us in New Jersey, very much. Thank you very much. uh, (laughs) They had this this existing database. And so immediately New Jersey, Pennsylvania, all the other states that adapted it, they crushed like casinos, for example, and others who were not as nimble as them. And they're making a fortune. I mean, there are billionaires in this industry, tons of millionaires who just recognize that, look, we can do this. No one's paying attention. Uh, it's, it's, hasn't been found illegal anywhere, particularly uh, in most states. And so um, we were set up for this. Again, they got lucky winning a Supreme Court case, which never figured to be heard. But they, you know, so they say the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And those guys worked hard and they got lucky. All right. Well, I, I would wait and see how big the book offer is before you turn it down out. Right <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wouldn't be the first one. All right. Um, so we finished the news section now on a serious note, talking about problem gambling. The National Council on Problem Gambling released an extensive new survey about gambling behaviors during the pandemic. Uh, the survey was conducted in April and compared to a pre-pandemic 2018 survey, more respondents said they lied to hide their gambling, up from 17% to 31%, felt restless or irritable when trying to cut back, up from 19% to 31%, relied on others to pay their gambling bills or debts, up from 12% to 27%, and needed to gamble more to feel the same level of excitement, up slightly from 27% to 31%. Also, the percentage of people surveyed who did some online gambling, whether legally or illegally, including sports betting, went up from 15% to 25%. I'm actually surprised those numbers are so low that there are still that many people who do all of their gambling in person. In any case, it all begs plenty of questions. The key one for me is how much of the increase in problem gambling behaviors are because of accessibility to online gambling versus how much of it is because of the way the pandemic has made people feel and affected their mental conditions. We've all read the reports about how human behavior to wait staff at restaurants, fan behavior at sporting events, et cetera, has gotten noticeably worse. So 
Is this just an extension of that or is something else at play here? John, what do you think of these survey findings? And are you concerned that a spike in problem gambling lies ahead? You know, not really. I mean, reports I've read from the UK over the years seem to me to suggest that problem gamblers have always been around and always will be. Legal, illegal, doesn't matter. There's this fantasy that a large sector of the US population, or really any population, is eager to take lots of financial risks in gambling, but only once it's legal. That's just not how it works, as far as I can tell. I think prohibition taught us something in this regard, right? And so, you know, yes, the pandemic messed up all of our brains to varying degrees, for sure. Unwanted downtime has to get filled somehow. And as people got back to work, I suspect their time spent gambling diminished a little bit. And that's going to continue. I mean, I got a weird eight-month paid vacation a few years ago. And, well, those law and order reruns didn't watch themselves, you know. But, <laughs> but I rarely watch those anymore, not because I've seen them all. It's not far off, but still, not because of that. I just don't have the time anymore. And if I did, I could be watching NCIS, for example, which I no doubt I'm deemed to be old enough to watch those reruns, but I just never got into that show. So, you know, I'm optimistic that a lot of life will be rebalancing in 2022, and that's including some of these at-risk gamblers as well. So maybe I'm being too optimistic but I am optimistic. All right. Interesting. Uh, I'll note that uh, my father-in-law is a big NCIS fan. So yeah, you are, you're hitting just about the right age demographic. (laughs) I think Um, I'm going to go slightly off track to tell a non-gambling story and I'll try to cut the extraneous details and streamline it a little. When we were moving last month on moving day, the buyer of the house we were selling showed up and caused a scene complaining about something with the house. And it was purely a negotiating tactic to get a little money back at the last minute. But he was just being a complete asshole, causing a scene in front of my kids, in front of the moving company, with our realtor and his realtor both trying to calm him down. It was ugly and and very upsetting on an already extremely stressful day. Hmm. When he left, the owner of the moving company we hired told us, basically, that's nothing. Almost every single move we've done in the past year or so, (laughs) there's been drama, there's been yelling, somebody's being an asshole to someone else, sometimes someone is venting at him and his moving crew, uh, and and he proceeded to tell us a few crazy stories, but he said he he never used to see stuff like that, but since the pandemic, he's seeing Mm -hmm. it all the time. And we all know what's gone on at sporting events. Um, There was an article in the San Francisco paper about customers verbally abusing restaurant workers. So my feeling about the problem gambling behavior is to attribute the majority of it to the pandemic. People are on edge. They've been on edge. The future is so uncertain. For a lot of people, the present is uncertain and they're extra stressed and extra anxious. And you don't really want to be stressed or anxious when you're gambling. Um, But, you know, even I, as a pretty responsible gambler in general, have found myself reacting a little worse when the cards aren't going my way in online poker. You know, nothing crazy. I'm not throwing my phone across the room or (laughs) or playing for bigger money than I should or anything like that. But, you know, muttering curse words at every little bit of bad luck, stuff like that, I'm definitely guilty of. So I, I, I do think that the pandemic is probably the the leading cause of these numbers we're seeing. And, you know, we're going to get some follow up on this, I think. But I think we're both going to be right that uh, uh, the amount of stress a lot of people are under is going to force them into some direction. And this isn't a good one any more than, you know, taking drugs or over drinking would either. But that's kind of the human condition. And I think when things get better and I do think 2022 is going to be a great year, even with what's going on now, uh, then I think uh, this is going to pretty much settle back down to earth. I hope you're right about that last point. That's that's the one I'm uncertain of. I was feeling really good the last couple of months about the direction everything was heading, and now it's uh, it seems to be going in the reverse direction. 
you know, uh, mask mandates are coming back, as we're all aware. And, uh, you know, I'm fully anticipating that anti-mask parents are going to be screaming at school board meetings in my town again very soon. Um, so I, I think the problem gambling behaviors that have been inflamed by the pandemic those are going to be continue to be an issue for at least a little while. I hope you're right about 2022, but I don't know. I'm not quite sure what the what the end date of all this is is, is really going to be. Well, we've got another five months before we even start that year. So, uh, right. and 12 months to be in the middle of 2022. So, I'm giving myself a lot of time there for this stall to shake out one way or the other. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. It's time for a tradition unlike any other, forcing the new guy on the editorial staff to appear on Gamble On. Mike Seeley is a veteran writer and editor whose byline has appeared everywhere from Grantland.com to the New York Times, and he joined our staff full-time at the beginning of the summer. He's based in Washington State, and he brings to the table expertise in horse racing, basketball, and as of about two days ago, trampoline gymnastics. Mike, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks, fellas. It's great to be here. So let's start with this U.S. Olympic basketball team. Their gold medal odds have gone from as high as minus 1,000 a few weeks ago to as low as minus 200 after they lost to France. Now they're back up to minus 250 after routing Iran. Is that good value now around that minus 250 mark? Like if you believe in the U.S.'s talent winning out is now the perfect time and price at which to back them? Or are you not at all confident this team can get it together and go all the way? So you, you brought up the key question here, Eric, if you believe the U.S. is going to win gold, that's an excellent wager. I happen to believe that they're not going to win gold this year. Mm -hmm. um, I think they've shown both in their exhibition games and also in their early Olympic pool play that they're just not a cohesive team yet. I think the win over Iran is a throwout, you know, not the most competitive squad over there. Right. Um, although it looks like at least the U.S. worked out some kinks in their rotation and that sort of thing. But I think what you're seeing in a lot of sports and not just basketball, but also water polo, women's soccer, um, is it the, the sports that America used to be absolutely invincible at? Not so much anymore. And it, with men's basketball, you're seeing NBA players on virtually every team, minus maybe Iran. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, it's just more spread out. You've got teams, international teams that have played together for a lot longer. And at the end of the day, if the U.S. doesn't come away with a gold medal, they may have to once again rethink how they pick their Olympic rosters. Mm. So when you say you don't believe that the U.S. will win, you're, are you basically saying even if the price was even money right now, you would probably not bet it that you think there's a uh, less than 50% chance that they prevail? Even if you can't identify the team that you would pick to prevail, sort of the field versus the U.S., you're going the field right now. 100%. Um, and I know that's a risky bet based on talent, but I think I, talent goes a long way, but cohesion goes a longer way to me. And I think if you look at the, the Spanish team, I think if you look at the French team, and most certainly if you look at that Australian team, um, these guys know how to play together and they're not afraid of the NBA guys because they are the NBA guys. They're just right. more role players. Right. And the Australian team, of course, got a, a big boost just prior to the Olympics by Ben Simmons not playing for the team. Probably. So <laughs> had to throw a little shade at my own uh, hometown team there. Nice. I tend to think he might have helped him a little bit. But hey, as long as he's not taking minutes away from Della Vadova, 
You know, right. that's the key. <laughs> yeah, Mike, let's talk a little bit about horse racing. I, I've been intrigued that a lot of longtime uh, observers of the sport are kind of split on the whole riding crop controversy. Uh, you know, here in New Jersey, at the, uh, they had the most restrictive riding crop rules. And in the Haskell, their big race of the year, had a number of triple crown entrants there. And uh, the winner was taken down uh, based on interference. And the jockey claimed that, well, I, you know, I was, I couldn't use the riding crop. So that's why I lost. And I talked to operator Dennis Drazen of the track and he said, that's absolutely not true. He just, uh, he, he sort of panicked and he could have, uh, you know, used the whip once or twice anyway, and that would have been fine. So I'm just curious in general, is the whole riding crop thing overdone or is it just, uh, you know, Kentucky is a little bit more middle of the road here. There's some limits, but not the limits in New Jersey. You know, where do you come down on, on this whole issue? I have complicated feelings, John, because mm -hmm. the race you just mentioned, um, <laughs> I had the favorite hot rod, Charlie, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. a pretty big nose bed on that horse um, and was disappointed, obviously, when he got taken down. I completely agree with Dennis, however, that their rules allow for the writers to use that crop for safety purposes. And, you know, I think that's a classic example of where the crop could have been used in order to keep Hot Rod Charlie out of Midnight Bourbon's path. Um, the problem with all that is that, you know, jockeys, they're amazing athletes, they're elite athletes. And, you know, in sports, it's all about muscle memory. So if I can do one thing and have been doing one thing all my life with that whip, and all of a sudden I got to go to New Jersey and abide by a different set of rules. It's pretty tough to unlearn that. Um, and I think, you know, I think Dennis also may have mentioned something about the horse racing integrity act, yeah. um, which should go into effect at some point, although we'll see what happens with its court challenges. I think, you know, once the horse racing integrity and protection act gets implemented, there should be one uniform standard that applies across the entire nation when it comes to how these riding crops are used. And then I think at that point, you know, if jockeys need to teach themselves a different technique, need to hone that technique, then that's doable. But if you're going from one track to another and the riding crop rules are different, that's really challenging if you're a jockey. And it really in any sport, if you have a certain court or field that has its own set of rules, that's gonna be almost insurmountable from a muscle memory standpoint. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I had the fourth best horse in the Haskell to show. And of course, one horse goes down, one horse gets DQ'd. Oh, yeah, so my, horse, my horse got placed <laughs> second. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's tainted money, I got to admit. I didn't no, feel great no about that. No, such thing as tainted money in horse racing. <laughs> that's yeah. probably true, I guess. Yeah. I it was, a little, it was a little squeamish about it, but I took it. Yeah, you know, for for every good beat that you happen to yeah. receive, there's there's a bad beat you're going to take at some point. So sure. uh, take it when you can get it. Yeah, um, I'm I'm going to bring it back to basketball again, Mike, with my next uh, topic sure. here. Um, I live in a state where betting on the NBA draft is not allowed here in Pennsylvania, uh, but I nevertheless have been keeping an eye on the odds, and it sounds like the experts are pretty much in agreement about how the first four picks are going to go: Cunningham, Green, Mobley, and then Suggs. A bet on those four going in that exact order is priced at minus 134 at points bet. Uh, so it really does sound like that's what everyone is expecting. Do you see any chance of that getting shaken up? Not really, although I wish it would. I'm a lot higher on Mobley um, than a lot of people are. I'm certainly higher on Mobley than I am Jalen Green. Um, and as good as Cade Cunningham is, as much as I appreciate the the kind of spectacular fundamentals of his game, if you will. I mean, I'm not super duper excited by him. 
Um, and I think the Pistons, personally, I think the Pistons might be wise to trade down a little bit, get some future assets and, you know, get in a position where they can grab Mobley or even if they want to trade further down, a guy like Davion Mitchell, who I'm really, really high on coming out of the NC2A tournament. Mm-hmm. I think he's the second coming of Drew Holiday. Um, as for Cade Cunningham, I think he's going to be a fine player. I think his upside is kind of Paul George-ish. Um, but Mobley could be something really unique. And I don't know if it were me, I might roll the dice on Mobley. Okay. Yeah. I look at that minus 134 number and what I'm hearing about uh, how confident everyone is about the order that they're going to go, but you brought up trades. It does seem that all it takes is one significant trade uh, and another team swooping in and suddenly it could really shake everything up. Do you think we're going to see a lot of trades on draft night, especially up, up there near the top of the draft? Do you anticipate that happening? Yeah, I don't know so much near the top of the draft, although I've read that Houston's interested in trading up to take Cunningham. Um, I think given how deep this draft is, um, I don't know. I think it's feasible to think you might see some teams package like a second round pick with a low first round pick to try to move up. You might see a lot of that. In fact, you know, some of the bets that I, that I've seen that I, I enjoy are, and I know bet MGM's offering this, um, where's Alex Garza going to go in the second round. You get a good over and under on his draft position. Um, mm-hmm. He's the, you know, he's the white version of the brow. You know, I, I think those are some of the funner bets out there that I'd be looking to play because, like you said, um, people seem pretty locked in on those first four picks. Okay. And, and one other guy that I want to ask you about, not all the way down at Garza, but probably not up in those first four. Um, every podcast I've listened to this week is low on Jonathan Kaminga. Everyone seems to think he's going to be a bust, but they're talking about him possibly going five, six, seven, somewhere in that range. Do you have an opinion on him as a player and, and do you have any guess where he's going to get drafted? Well, that, that's the funny thing, Eric, is, you know, you've got these G League programs um, that are supposed to nurture top flight prospects like Green and Kuminga in a way that perhaps college basketball can't. Um, but I don't know. That league has so little exposure on TV unless you really want to go find it um, that it's hard to say. I mean, I've watched plenty of clips of Kaminga and, and Green. Um, Green certainly looks like the more polished player, but there's some spectacular clips of Kuminga, um, especially on offense when he goes to get his own shot. And of course, he's a big wing with tons of athleticism. To me, he fits okay into the modern NBA game. Um, if you look at his three-point stroke, it looks good. Doesn't go in as often as it probably should. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, I guess he's sort of a crapshoot. But if you look at some of the guys underneath him, I think you could say the same about them. You know, it just depends. It depends on what you want. If you want stability, look elsewhere. If you want high upside, maybe he's your guy. Gotcha. Yeah, Mike, uh, maybe it's only because uh, I'm in New Jersey and I can bet on anything. I could have bet on Simone Biles in the uh, gymnastics, in fact. Uh, I didn't, and I'm not sure what happens with that. But uh, so I kind of find that now when I watch sports on TV, um, everything that I watch, I'll tend to put a small wager on. Um, and they are small wagers, but but I just kind of have that correlation. But you know, I've talked to a number of people who have said – they don't always match up with the sports they like to watch and the sports they like to bet or would like to bet. And so I'm wondering if, if you're in that camp as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple sports for me that really jump out mm. um, golf being one of them. <laughs> um, I, you know, there are some good golf wagers out there, but to bet on who's going to win a given tournament, yeah. that's not for me. I mean, it's just, to me, it's the biggest 
crapshoot for a casual gambler that there is. Um, you know, if I wanted to put in the work, like a Rufus Peabody type of guy, develop my own system algorithm, you know, I probably would be a, a horse for the course type of better in golf. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my interests are kind of spread too thin and so is my time. Um, the second sport that I really love watching that I hate betting for kind of an opposite reason is formula one racing. Um, I just think that, you know, the top teams, their vehicles are so much better than the second tier teams that you just see like a Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton battle for one, two, almost every race. And that's pretty boring from a betting standpoint. If you want to get into top six and top 10 bets, that's more interesting, but um, it's just, you know, the guys who can win at that sport, the way it is, it's just too narrow a field. Yeah, I got to tell you, the, I, we kind of missed out. There was going to be, a, believe it or not, a Weehawken Grand Prix. This goes back about 10, 10 years ago. So this is in New Jersey, right literally on the Hudson River. So the course would have spectacular views of the Empire State Building and really the entire uh, Manhattan skyline. And uh, as a promotion, they brought in uh, Grand Prix champ Sebastian Vettel at the time of Germany. And I got a ride with him, but I was in the back seat and he had some kind of uh, starlet in the front seat, like a celebrity. And he seemed pretty enamored with so I was I was the third wheel in a, in a ride, but we went along a Boulevard East, which is like on an elevate elevated road, uh, and then you go downhill to the water uh, in the track, and uh, we were doing ninety and a thirty zone and uh yeah that was pretty exciting and they they go around the turn they actually speed up around the turns it's absolutely insane but people are asking if you're afraid i'm like this is literally the best driver in the world okay and like people are getting in, in cabs in midtown manhattan all the time there's some guy from god knows where we don't even know if he has a license he's going you know 40 in traffic is zipping in between cars and people don't even you know hesitate so why would i be scared of uh of riding with a, a grand prix champion so right. that race never came off but it would have been good that's one I would have watched and probably would have bet on too. Cool. No, it sounded like you were in good hands. I did a story on dirt track car racing once in Southern Illinois. Um, not exactly F1 there, yeah. but I'll tell you, getting in the riding shotgun in that car just for a practice lap, I had some whiplash go on for at least two weeks because you're never going straight. Formula One, at least there's some semblance of going straight. Dirt track yeah. or something. The yeah, the one problem I ran into at the end was that Sebastian wanted to impress this gal. So while I think he forgot I was even there, but uh, so he said, you want me to do some donuts? So he did spinning around. I mean, my neck was stiff for a week. It was it was brutal going around. And the the road was completely like defaced with the skid marks that are probably still there 10 years later. So did he draw uh, a particular design with the skid marks? Or was no, but I'm sure he could have. I was just glad to get out of there at that point. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Mike, you, you've you checked off two uh, staff right of passage at once here on, on this uh, interview. You appeared on Gamble On, which is one, but the other is you learned firsthand that there is no sport, person, etc., that you can mention that John Brennan doesn't have a story, an anecdote, <laughs> a name drop to, to go with. Uh, camel racing, maybe, John, but I don't know. I, I actually, about a week after that don't test him, Mike. experience, I'm not kidding, at the Meadowlands racetrack, they had a camel, and I got that. That was my uncomfortable ride. I didn't go far, but uh, that's not that's not built for men, I can tell you that. That's for sure. There's no, there's no saddle in the world that's going to uh, make that uh, reasonable as far as I'm concerned. Right on, right on. You can't, you can't, you can't stump him, Mike. He's got, he's got an anecdote for everything. I'm telling uh, you. I'm going to work on it though, Eric. Okay. On. Okay. All right. Next time you come on the show, maybe, maybe you'll get him with something. We'll see. You got it. But for now, we really appreciate you joining us and I'll let the listeners know uh, you can follow Mike on Twitter 
at MD Sealy. That's M D S E E L Y. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks, guys. It's been a blast. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. If I wanted to be a jerk, I might point out that even though we're in this bankroll thing together, I went one for one with my bets last week while John went 0 for 4. Uh, but, but I don't want to be a jerk, so I, I most definitely will not point that out. Uh, after all, as I said, we're in this bankroll thing together. So uh-huh. our boxing bet uh, on Isaiah Steen to defeat Calvin Henderson at minus 175 odds was a winner. We profited $80 on that. Our golf bets didn't do so well. We had Stuart Sink for top 20 and top 40 and Sadoshi Kodaira for top 40. They both missed the cut. So that added up to a $140 loss. And our dalliance with Olympic surfing didn't go well as a plus 600 pick John John Florence did not win gold, costing us $50. That means we lost $110 in total. And we're flirting with four figures territory again, currently down $997. We also have $1,757 on hold in futures bets. So that leaves us with $7,336 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first. And I'm actually throwing you a a minor curveball, John. Uh, When I sent the podcast outline last night, I said I was going to follow through on the bet I almost made last week on the Giants to win the NL West because they were up three games on the Dodgers and still priced at plus 400 on DraftKings. Now, DraftKings still has the best price, but it's only plus 300 and they lost last night. So it's only a two game lead. So the timing and the price aren't quite right. So instead, I'm going smaller scale and focusing just on this afternoon's Dodgers-Giants game. Uh, The Giants got embarrassed 8-0 last night. Uh, I expect them to bounce back today. They're plus 109 on the money line at Caesars. But I'm thinking, let's push our luck just a bit and take them on the run line, minus one and a half runs. So they have to win by two or more runs. The payout is plus 210 at FanDuel. We'll keep the risk small, risking $50 to win 105 on the Giants to win by two or more. Yeah, I can see that. So, uh, you know, as much as we try to keep it light here, uh, mean-spirited jabs about betting results aside, I should add, (laughs) (laughs) my self-loathing about those absolutely inane and dreadful bets had me being, well, loathe to even make picks this week so mm. and the real and in the real world that's a good thing no chasing for me no interest in doubling down so i can get all the money back right away i don't have that in my gut and that's a, a good thing and seriously an important thing to watch for for people who are getting more in, into gambling these days you know what happens when you have a bad day if you just think you never want to make another bet that's a lot better than i gotta get even i gotta get even so i feel good about that at least but the podcast rules demand i take some swings so swing (laughs) i shall yeah (laughs) first olympic golf give me englishman paul casey for 50 at plus 350 to win a medal after his opening round of 67 on thursday which was wednesday night eastern time Um, i locked casey in at plus 450 before the round and while he's tied for eighth place the top of the board is littered with pretenders he's probably the the, the strongest dog of the top 10 and he's not the, you know, upper, upper tier, but he's a solid player. He has a ton of international experience and I think he's peaking in his forties, frankly. So uh, Casey 50 at plus three fifty to win a medal. 
Okay, I like that. Um, and uh, from Olympic golf to Olympic basketball, I'm doing a bet inspired by our guest, Mike Seeley. He seemed to think Australia was the best shot. But, um, you know, if I were to bet them to win the gold at plus 750, that would mean I'm betting against the U.S. And I don't want to be unpatriotic. So <laughs> instead, betting on Australia just to meddle. That's not necessarily unpatriotic. They are minus 110 to win a medal. I like that price. There are basically five teams with a shot at one of the three medals. Let's bet $110 to win 100 that Australia will be one of those teams. All right, and to close the loop here, I have a baseball game of my own, my own today. Okay. Uh, Carlos Rodon of the White Sox for 50 at minus 180 in Kansas City. That seems like a tough line for a road game, but uh, Rodon has a 190 road ERA, and the Royals, frankly, they can't hit. So 50 at uh, minus 180, the White Sox. All right. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Mike Seeley. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please do your thing and take us out. Yeah, so I don't watch any of those ESPN talking head shows, but if I was forced to do one, I likely would go for the Pardon the Interruption show with Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. Uh, and as it happened, my channel surfing, and the kids have to Google that yet, channel surfing, I'm not sure, but uh, I did it on Wednesday. It landed me on their show just that they were about to discuss Simone Biles and her withdrawal from the team all around Olympic women's gymnastic event. They played the, the clip where Biles said she ultimately decided to make a decision to look out for herself so she didn't continue. You know, for old school folks like me and Tony and Michael, that's complicated. But to their credit, neither one of them jumped on the hot, easy take of, you know, condemning her or even a knee jerk reaction and never questioned uh, anything someone on the correct team does. You know, it's it's just a difficult situation. And uh, you had sent me a note about I think it was DraftKings refunding money to those gamblers who bet on the U.S. women to win gold when they settle for silver based really on this decision. And I, at least it's one less group of people going after Biles on social media, hopefully. Hmm. Uh, then I stumbled across one of those political gab fests and I crawled under the desk with my remote control in hand uh, <laughs> with this topic coming up. But surprisingly, they simply pointed a few things out, such as the enormous amount of pressure that Biles and her staff had put on her. Right down, I didn't know this, she had a GOAT logo, the greatest of all time, on her, on her uniform. You know, that's already true, but it's kind of better not to wear that while competing. I think you, you, you do that away from the arena and after you're done. Uh, so that's, that is a little insight into the amount of pressure she had put on herself. And they also noted that if Biles is not 100% focused on her extremely complex routines, she's risking permanent injury. I mean, look, I was courtside at Chicago Stadium when Scottie Pippen refused to enter that playoff game against the Knicks in 93, 94, whatever it was. And it wasn't because him being upset about not getting to take the final shot was risking paralysis, to be blunt. Not exactly. That was all ego. There's a, there's a big difference here. You know, there's been some talk in the gymnastics world about whether her routines are simply too dangerous. And we can have a healthy discussion about that, too. But just kudos to those who didn't just jump on a default conclusion to appease a segment of their audience and get clicks, likes, whatever. But we still have a lot to process here, I think, if we're being fair. And with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on. Gamble on.